I talk about it all the time with my Buddhist practice, no mud, no lotus. You have to be grateful for the tough times because it's the tough times that give birth to the good times or at least the better times. Not to say that I'm going through bad times right now, but it's definitely some mud that I am uh, appreciating in, in my life right really? now. How's, well, what's your mud to lotus ratio like these days? <laughs> it's uh, probably a 70-30 right now. 70-30 lotus? Lotus uh, is winning or mud? Mud's winning at this point. <laughs> but well, I we keep that, that in mind. I keep that in mind that that just means abundance of the lotus later. Yeah, absolutely. Just so grateful for uh, all of the things that will fruit from that mud and that have already fruited, including uh, our newest partnership with Salestina. Salestina is classical music's wingman. By day, they're world-class performers and studio musicians who've played your favorite films. By night, they're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was, is, and can be. I'll talk a little bit more about uh, Salestina here in a bit, but I'm thinking about that mud to lotus ratio these days. Yeah, what's yours? Because... Um, you know, I, I'm there. There's some just tasky things that are going on going on at this job of mine that I just need to press through this final week, and then I'm on winter, you know, break for a couple weeks, and nice. you know can get that get that rest. I think really a lot of it is that you can only give what you got, and when you get toward the end of the year, especially a busy year like this one has been for me, you just you know just crawling toward that finish line and, yeah. and getting there. But more more broadly, you know, I think. I've been thinking about what we've been talking about uh, specifically when it comes to the rise of this open anti-Semitism. There's been a lot that I've had to learn, a lot of healing that I have had to work on for myself to have compassion, uh, that the, the, at least the compassion that I need to have for other communities and put myself in other shoes and see different perspectives. I'm going to get more into that uh, in the in the triloquy this week, as it relates to a, a different community, but you know, thinking about uh, solidarity and unity and those things has gotten me thinking about areas in my musical education, even all the way from childhood, where there was some overlap. You know, there's uh, there's uh, there were points in my elementary school music teaching where I learned Jewish mel melodies and mm -hmm. Jewish songs that I still. Remember to this day, mm -hmm. were, were they teaching the the Jewish songs uh, to y'all back in the back in the dark darker ages? Jeez, I think <laughs> it, it was, was like seventies. I think it was like fourth grade ish, right around there, mm -hmm. that we learned Hava Nagila. Okay, what, but what, that's that's more for weddings though. But what was it uh, about learning that? Was there was there a school wedding or something? Or do do you remember the context under which the music teacher brought it in? No, I think I, this is one of those traveling music teachers you know she would had the whole district mm -hmm. so we got her on thursdays or something like that and okay. everybody got their music education on thursdays yeah and she was jewish so perhaps she was just trying to share that with us well then maybe if it ever comes along one of your playlists you have the opportunity to tell that story mm -hmm. and to and to share that bit of your own history there's a uh, a recording of it i found by the london festival orchestra it's not the how I'm typically used to hearing it, you know, with uh, stomping feet and, and a crowd right. yelling and stuff, the wedding reception thing. But it's cool to hear in an orchestral context, too. Here's a little bit of it.
There's something about the modal nature of the music, you know, the scale that they're using. It's not the typical Western classical scale. So it gives what I, I imagine a lot of people would say, like a, a Middle Eastern sort of sound, maybe mm -hmm. a, a klezmer sound yeah. for people who have a broader uh, vocabulary. But the way that that tambourine came in reminded me of something uh, that someone brought to my attention. I want to uh, shout out my my homie Mike, who lives in uh, New York City. I've been getting uh, Caesar onto Florence Price. So now Mike has been listening to a lot of Florence Price. And he brought something uh, to my attention that I don't think I had ever thought about before. So among Florence Price's concertos and symphonies uh, are some tone poems. And there's one called the Mississippi River sweet i'm sure you know you've you've uh, uh played that air that i'm sure well there's a section of it that speaks to one of those hebrew stories let my people go and that that tambourine sort of comes in in a similar way and the idea at least what mike put in front of me was that maybe florence price tipped her hat to jewish communities back hmm. in her day through this music Let, let's take a listen here so you can hear what i'm talking about its head through for a, a minute there what what do you think have have you ever thought about jewish influence on the music of florence price this black not woman composer one time not one time but if you hear it through that context you have to admit there is something there well you know i'm gonna go there now <laughs> <laughs> tell people exactly at uh marker right you know <laughs> because everybody's there with a stopwatch waiting how do you approach that as a, a radio host something really cool that happens eight minutes or 13 minutes in the piece that you want the audience to hear and pay attention to, but you can't just ask them to have their timer going. How, how have you uh, approached that, that specific issue in the past? Usually just say, and li be listening near the end when, uh, the, when, when the composer shouts out a local bird call or, <laughs> sure. you know, the, it, it's tough. Yeah. It's tough because you have tune in and tune out too. So. Yeah. Well, as I was saying, you know, all of, these conversations, these dialogues, the content people have been creating around uh, quelling anti-Semitism, it reminded me that in elementary school, maybe also around fourth grade, fourth, uh, fifth grade, uh, my music teacher, uh, Miss Melody, if you can believe it. Uh, no, Miss Medley. It was Miss Medley. <laughs> Shout out to very, Karen Medley. Very good. Um, uh, she introduced us to a tune called Bashana Haba'a. I, I gave a presentation uh, earlier today as we're uh, taping this uh, uh, mostly Jewish audience. And I just thought it was such an opportunity for me to build that uh, bridge, you know, to to connect that gap, my knowing this song that I could still sing to this day. Mm -hmm. um, and I've learned that it's more of a, not necessarily a Hanukkah uh, tune, uh, but uh, a New Year's tune. The English translation of uh, the, the lyrics are, next year we will sit on the porch and count migrating birds. Children on vacation will play catch between the house and the fields. You will yet see, you will yet see how 
how good it will be next year. So we're talking about all of this mud that, you know, the the lotuses haven't necessarily, you know, peeked their way through that water yet and mm. and and done that, but it's coming. So I'm I'm just really grateful to have learned that song long ago and to still be able to remember it. Here's here's a uh, an excerpt of a performance of it by a few San Francisco symphony uh, musicians. Let's see what they did with it here. Kleinbart and Eugene Izatov featured there. You know, when we talk about holiday programming, I think there, you know, have been those discussions from, I don't know, the past 20 years now, Merry Christmas versus Happy Holidays and all mm-hmm. those sorts of things. You know, we can split hairs and have that conversation. But at the end of the day, if the holiday concert is still, in essence, a Christmas concert, you just need to call it that. So that means that we have to make holiday programming that programming that speaks to more than the Christmas tradition or even the the Western perspective on things, we have to bridge those gaps and and find that programming. So what that means is that maybe some of us, all of us, need to expand our uh, thought processes on holiday programming on the repertoire and you know be able to make suggestions where we can. We'll we'll be talking about Kwanzaa when we get there mm-hmm. later later this month, you know, but I've spent a lot of time thinking about okay, what are the pieces of music that I can align with that celebration? And I, th- I think on the same token, we need to be thinking about that for um for 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 holiday programming for pieces that speak to Hanukkah uh, specifically. And, you know, Jewish people have told me everywhere that Hanukkah isn't even the biggest deal holiday, you know, but still, you know, we have the holiday season and we have people who know nothing. I think there's something to to broadening uh, that perspective. I would go as far as to say it should be considered a, a responsibility for folks who present. Do you think Christmas is under attack? Do I think Christmas is under attack? Uh, no, I think Christmas is attacking me. I think it's the converse. <laughs> oh, <geez>. <laughs> but what did we talk about last week or the week before? The holiday season is here. You might as well just let it happen to you. Just go limp. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, you know, I, I think the the bigger point is that, you know, when you write a break, when you have a a, a Jewish uh, traditional tune, folk song, Hanukkah me- melody or something on your playlist, that's an opportunity for you to you know, not only diversify people's ideas around holiday programming, but sort of put humanity next to the tradition or make it relevant for today. I I, I don't know. I, I think of there of there being a responsibility when it comes to the music, the nostalgia that people have around certain things, making people uh, feel seen, and genuinely teaching people about something. I've I've learned so much. You know, in these past few months, as I have 
refocus my attention on understanding what Jewish equity looks like. And when it comes to programming, I think we can we can do just that. I don't I won't say his name because he may not want me to do that. But a a good friend of mine uh, who's who's black. He uh, told me when he was growing up as a kid, he saw a Star of David in a, a couple of houses and asked his mom, why didn't they have one? That, that That's good. That's what people are doing. Let's do that, too. So his mom was like, OK, so, you know, you have this black family who's not Jewish anything with a Star of David in their window because the son wanted it and he mm-hmm. thought it was pretty. You know, that's a that's a story that could uh, that could be told, you know, just just I don't know, taking the opportunity to say something uh, that is teaching that not only sheds light but sheds humanity and 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 sheds you know something real in this uh in this part of the season. You um you uh have have you are you in your complaining mode <laughs> about your holiday programming or are you still hanging on in the spirit of it? Keep in mind that by the time the complaining happens, I it's the twenty fourth. <laughs> I am ready to put King Wenceslas and all of his frankincense on these three ships and leave this winter wonderland. <laughs> Let me tell you, I See, hear you. Because when 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 you do this kind of work, you've got proximity to it every day, right? And right. not just a little sliver of it. So that means broadening the programming, the holiday programming, would even benefit the host because you're not listening you're not to the bored. same thing. Here, mm-hmm. here, and, and all the time. All right. Well, anyway, um, happy holidays, <laughs> everyone. D A Z E. I believe that uh, Hanukkah begins on uh, the 18th this year. So before we, you know, record again, Hanukkah will have started. So uh, happy Hanukkah to everyone out there uh, who celebrates. Let's build unity through holiday programming. Let's build uni- unity through dialogue, and let's build unity through reframing the way we think about this thing called classical music. Let's jump in. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this... Is Triloquy, Opus 178, on this cold, wintry evening here in Minnesota. Thank you so much for tuning in to returning listeners. We could not do this without you. The Triloquy podcast exists for you and exists because of you. So thank you so much for your continued listenership and continued support. For new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the concept of classical music and expands it. We take pieces of music that would be uh, traditionally approximated to that phrase, pieces of music that aren't, as well as conversations, talking points, dialogues, all toward the effort of decolonizing that phrase classical music, making the idea and concept of classical music something that actually relates to all of our varied, diverse experiences and lived perspectives on music. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, uh, to check out past opuses and to donate, visit 
visit our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-I.org. In addition to your very generous support, support for the Triloquy podcast comes from Salestina. We are so happy to have developed a partnership with them. And I think they're such an incredible organization, Scott. Just to read a little bit about the what we do from their website, it says Salestina currently offers three areas of programming. All three serve our mission of connecting others to our art form in areas where we as musicians see a distinct need. This includes Sounds Promising, their tuition-free young artist program, Vital Sounds, which is a private virtual bedside uh, concert three days a week for patients in UCLA's ICU and in-person and virtual performances. It's that Vital Sounds that I'm really attracted to. I've had the great uh fortune of not needing to spend an extended time in the hospital any time in my life. I've never broken a bone. None of none of that has happened. Lucky. But I can imagine that any ray of light you need, especially if you're spending a long time in the hospital, especially if you're in the ICU, how that can be just really in- incredible, just so uh, encouraging to, to those people. Oh, yeah. um, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, Salestina musicians, young artists, and guest artists perform private virtual concerts for patients, their families, and medical staff at UCLA's ICU. In March of 2021, they were honored to share Yo-Yo Ma's artistry with patients and staff for a special uh, performance. So uh, not only is it uh, their own musicians, they reach way outside of the organization, all to bring music to the people. So we are so incredibly honored and excited uh, to be partnered with Salestina here on Triloquy. Uh, in the third movement today, um, I have the great pleasure of featuring Maria Clark and Maria Thompson Corley, uh, the artist behind a new recording called Soul Sanctuary. Uh, more on that in a bit. We're going to have a K-pop uh, finale <laughs> today, you nice. know, just in time for the holiday season um, and all sorts of uh, stuff in between. But for now, let's jump into movement one. All right. Once again, uh, Scott, I'm going to get us started this week uh, in our first movement, checking our accidentals, and I'm going to give us a sharp. I'm reading here from the SeattleTimes.com, the headline, this composer combines South Indian classical music and Western choral tradition. We have two cardinal directions there, Western and South. What can you tell me about the significance of South Indian versus just Indian? Have you happened to meet a South Indian <laughs> musical artist I before? Would point, yeah, I would point people back to Triloquy Opus 25. Oh, you remember the number. Yeah. I do, yeah. And that was an epic in-studio performance and interview mm-hmm. with... Um, with Bupati. Uh, playing the Mandingam. Mm-hmm. And then and our, our friend here in Minnesota. Nirmala, uh, Nirmala, yeah. Nirmala Rajasekar playing the Saraswati Veena. Yeah. And uh, I, I loved everything about that day, in particular, just the way that Nirmala's presence in the room was such just a calming. And she was such a genuinely happy person yeah. that that was infectious. And I loved the respect that she paid to the music tradition, how she would prepare by herself and meditate a little bit before she would perform mm-hmm. the the traditional dress. Um, I, I love all the pageantry around it. And it's not only uh, Nirmala who is just spreading this joy. Uh, her daughter, Shruti, is doing the same thing. And that's actually who this article uh, is about. I'll read a little bit here. Quote, music itself can be a conduit for the community, said Shruti Rajasekhar, on the connection between humans 
through hearing and vibration. Raja Sekar is the composer behind several works and the coming Seattle Pro Musica program, Behold the Star. Behold the Star will premiere December 10th, so it already happened as we're recording this uh, at Bastyr University Chapel and will be performed on December 17th. Uh, coming up at Seattle First Baptist Church. The program will include selected works by Raja Sekar as well as familiar holiday songs for choral ensembles. So mm. one of my favorite things about Shruti's music, you know, I've heard it uh, performed live, of course, uh, recordings, is that it really does beautifully make the point of classical music being more than what we here in the West typically think of. Um, a, a lot of her music definitely fits inside of what would people can would consider that classical music box, but it definitely um, speaks to the South Indian musical traditions, mm -hmm. the expanded scales that are used and the unique, uh, beautiful technique. I think it's just the perfect way to make that point of classical music being more than Western Europe, you know, using Indian and specifically South Indian music as the example. And Shruti Rajasekhar just masterfully uh, makes that point musically through her compositions. One of my questions, though, one of the things I wanted to uh, throw at you is that uh, this music, this beautiful uh, Carnatic music, is going on a concert, you know, one of these holiday programs, as we were just uh, talking about, mm -hmm. where a lot of people are going to these performances that wouldn't typically. I know in my days uh, playing in orchestras, the, uh, the, uh, the 4th of July pops, would be full, you know, we play outside in the park is, you know, thousands of people and the Christmas pops, the holiday pops. You play that outside we, we, too? We don't play it outside. You know, some orchestras do, you know, where it's warm enough to do that. Um, but because the crowds are always so big, right. we, we will play something like seven shows of it and most of the seven shows would be sold out. And you would be complaining about it by the end of those seven shows. Oh, of course, because it's the, <laughs> it's the same music this many times. Yep. But I guess what I'm getting to is that you have a larger audience than you have other times of the year, probably your largest audience of the year. Do you think it's even more of a risk to expand programming in front of audiences that you're likely only going to see once a year? Or is it a unique opportunity to expand their idea on what orchestras are doing by integrating, for lack of a better word, integrating holiday programming in this so, way? Yeah, such an interesting wrestling match, that question is. You're 100% right that you've got a larger audience during the holidays, especially Christmas. That's when people go, mm -hmm. right? And yeah, that would be the perfect opportunity to try to widen the circle a little bit. So you don't see it as a risk? Um, as, as a listener? As a as a presenter programmer, if you're putting together the programming, if you have any say, you know, are you going right. to accept the narrative that this is risky, or are you going to go for it? Right. Well, that's that's the thing is that thinking about that audience, because w what if you're an ensemble that has a reputation for a thing, mm -hmm. and people go to hear you do that thing every year because that's their holiday tradition? I'm thinking Mannheim Steamroller. Sure. They pr they turn out the same program every year and people fill the go to the rafters mm -hmm. to to hear it but 
in this instance with this group Pro Musica, is it Seattle Pro Musica? Mm -hmm. uh, the Seattle Pro Musica program, one of the things uh, that they talk about here is we have been much more conscious about trying to expand beyond doing music by white composers. And a lot of this is to open up the space for the choir to hear the new perspectives and to work with somebody who can bring their personal story as well as their cultural background. So for them, that's what people would expect from them is the different, sure, right? So I really think it's the audience and what you're known for. You know, that it's a wrestling match. And I, I hear that, you know, there's a, a leader of an orchestra. I've, you know, we, we've had conversations and basically uh, there, or I won't name them, but, but this organization is very known um, and celebrated for their holiday programming, what they do every Christmas season. One year they tried to switch it up a little bit, do something a little different. And I understand there was hate mail everywhere. First of all, I was like, welcome to my world. Yep. But, uh, but, but secondly, I guess that is just something I have, I haven't always considered. I've, I figured the holiday uh, concert goers would appreciate something new, something different, because at the end of the day, they're doing something new and different, at least something that they don't typically do. So I mean, I don't know. I'm always with shaking up the the programming, shaking the table in that way. I just thought I would, you know, get your thoughts on how risky, you know, or not it is to, you know, take your non-typical audience and, you know, put a little uh put put a little hot sauce in the stew or or whatever. One Christmas morning in a former life when I was doing the morning show, I played I'm probably about 7:15 in the morning. I played Christmas morning? Uh, uh, on on Christmas uh, Eve okay. morning. Uh, I played a piece that was, was not from the catalog <laughs> that you would expect on a Christmas morning, right? Mm -hmm. It was a very early music or Renaissance type sounding band. And it was a song about the Virgin Mary. But it wasn't anything that you would recognize for the holiday, right? Okay, so we're we're trying to like get programming updated, and you go even older back into the Renaissance. You go take us even back, this further was, back. This was a, just a little <laughs> bit of a different flavor. Okay, and I didn't see any difference sonically. I didn't see any difference between that and say like the you know the the in uh, Chelsea's Deum and all that the the penny whistle and drone and sack butt you know oh, recordings. Also, this is like Celtic and. Eh, it, Sure, Sephardic, some of it, yeah. And people would call up, what are you doing? What is this? And I'd say, well, it's a, it's a song about the Virgin Mary. It's going to be over here in like two minutes. It's too late. <laughs> I've ruined Christmas. What would, you, what would you like to share with the audience? Just a little what, bit of that what, sound. What sounded like. Yeah, just to, this, this is not the exact track, but it is the, the flavor of it. actually a little nervous when you <laughs> started talking about renaissance music but 
There's some there's a percussion groove in there that I can get with. I don't, I don't know if I would be offended by that on Christmas the track morning. that ruined Christmas 2004. <laughs> so let's so again let's take that aesthetic for the uh, folks who are coming to the concert hall this one time of the year. That is something that, that what we just listened to was something that you would say, hey. Maybe this won't scare them away permanently. Maybe <laughs> maybe this would even get them to stay. What would be your uh uh goal? What 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 outcome would you hope for by or did you hope for, I guess in this case, by putting in a little something different where people would usually expect something they would expect? Frankly, I was bored. Mm. I was ready for something different. And I thought if I'm ready, then there has to be somebody else out there that's ready too. Now, granted. Nobody, nobody called in with any kudos or sent me any emails with kudos. Yeah. No, it was mostly people who were pissed off. But Now, make the, the case for me. Help, help me understand. I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. Why does it matter if the host is bored? This is, this is programming for the audience, for the listeners. Who, who cares if the host is bored? What, what would you say if somebody asked you that? I would say that the host, say now I feel like I'm answering for you, but my response would be the host's feeling about the music can impact the experience that the listener has. So if a host is very excited about something, the listener has an even better chance of uh, of having uh, a good experience mm -hmm. with the programming. If the host is bored, you know, maybe it's the host's responsibility to to tuck that away and and really sell this music. But if there's a genuine organic excitement or interest there on the part of the host, there's a, a better potential of that happening for the listener. That That's, that is how I would answer that. That is one of the reasons. Okay, what are what are others? If you can, you know, offer any. Widen the circle. Um, let's 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 get your palate ready for something other than what you'd expect. Um, we we don't have to listen to all of these same carols on a on a loop, mm -hmm. gradually increasing until we get to uh, uh, Christmas Eve. We don't have to. Yeah, yeah. I think and, that's also my point. Like, and, no, right. nothing bad is going to happen. You know, not the the least of all of it is you you get a little bit of excitement in the presenter's voice, mm -hmm. and maybe that's contagious. Sure, there's that, but you're going to notice the board sound in my voice a lot uh, more prevalent than the excitement for a piece of music i can tell you that so to go back to this article to go back to shruti's music you know i think again that point of being able to work with a living composer you know who can share their personal story i think what you read you know uh share their story and their culture well yeah. I, i'm paying attention to that story part you know we can't you know, get the story of the person who wrote Jingle Bells, or we can't get the story of of uh, Handel for his Messiah. Thank goodness we can't get his story. You know, y'all would ignore it anyway. But <laughs> I, I think, you know, that personal connection uh, plays a, a huge role. I'll, I'll read a little bit uh, more from it here. It says, Behold, the star will present I Am My Own, Roger Sekar's commissioned piece that ponders the intersections of communal and individual effort. In the composition, Raza Sekar explores the legend of the Star of Bethlehem and aligns the holy entity with Krishna's nakshatra, a birth star, in Hindu teaching. So we have, you know, the holiday theme of the star, which is very um, ubiquitous, you know, for, for most people already. But we're not only meshing 
Western and uh, Eastern musical aesthetics, but Western and Eastern um, stories, you know, uh, mythologies that are connected to this time of year. Mm. It's one thing to get you know, the Western, let's just say white audience interested in a musical aesthetic from far away. Do you think it offers even more of a challenge to take something as personal as, you know, the story of baby Jesus as, uh, as Christians, you know, contextualize this time of year and mesh that with somebody who has nothing to do with the Christian religion. I definitely know, you know, I'm not naive. I know that there are definitely more conservative people who would, you know, really call foul and be offended. You and bet. This is a, a war on Christmas. So those yep. people exist. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, is it your thought, your understanding that classical audiences, even once a year, holiday time, classical audiences, would this be going too far? Would this be fine? What would you generally expect if you had to guess, you know, what general reaction to this sort of culture blending could be? I, I'm not sure because just over this past weekend, the Minnesota Orchestra did a blend with Messiah. They, they, they played Messiah with a, um, a, blended it with a piece called Nuestra Navidad. So there was a, an English and Spanish confluence there. So I don't, I, I probably asked them to see how it worked out for them. Sure. Um, but again, if you have a group that this is their bag, this is what they do, then the, the audience that's going to come is interested in that. So it's all rooted. You, you, you're coming back around to that, and I hear your point. I guess what I'm saying is that we can't expect the ensembles that, quote, just do this to be the only ones doing that. I think this is the responsibility of all of the ensembles, all of the organizations this year that are pulling in larger than other times of the year audiences. I, I definitely hear you when, you know, an audience expects this out of this ensemble. So yes, I think there's value in the the big town orchestras, you know, the the pops ensembles, the whoever that does all of the Vince Guaraldi and the uh the uh what's the bump 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 the sleigh ride. I can't believe I forgot the name of that <laughs> one. You know, all, yeah. all of those classic tunes mm -hmm. that that is classic. I think there's an opportunity there for them as well. So I guess I'm exploring what this could look like for those very typical audiences, mm. you know. We can talk we can talk about, you know, what it looks like organizationally. I like to think about what the person uh in their Christmas finest, you know, their faux fur and all of that, what <laughs> might be their reaction to sitting down in a concert hall and learning about Krishna, you know, as it relates to the holiday season as opposed to baby Jesus. Yeah, it's a good point, but uh I really feel like if the bigger organizations wanted to do that, they would have been doing it. Mm, see, and that's the thing right there. So you're saying they just don't want to. <laughs> or maybe they just don't know to. Or the or the no one has ever made the idea. I would have never thought about sure. Krishna's star. You or know? perhaps there's perhaps there's no budget to get the uh um, the background that you need to be able to do a program and be sure. competent. Sure, sure. I don't know. 
yeah, hire in the right people and make sure you're right. not. So I, I, I get that point as well. Well, um, either way, I'm sure this is going to be a really incredible uh, performance. Of course, I wish I could be there, but I'll be uh, keeping an ear out for the recording. Just to uh, close this out at the end of this Seattle Times article, it says, quote, my mother made the decision to be a full-time musician in this country, Raja Sekar said, of her inspiration to stake a modern space in classical canons. Again, shout out to Nirmala there. Uh, Raja Sekar will continue to sail forward into a cartography of her own delineation. Quote, the big thing is I never have a plan ever. If I picture two years from now, it's totally blank for me, she said, smiling. That can sound very artsy or or whatever. Oh, what privilege a composer has to just live so free. But as we all learned, March... 2020, you right. know, two years from now, that that really is a white slate, whether we want to admit it or not. All of our futures are are blank, right? <laughs> <laughs> At least for now. Uh, but that just sounds like somebody who's like on at peace right on the me. door of nirvana yeah yeah exactly so huge huge shout out and congratulations to shruti rajasekar if you are unfamiliar uh with her music i'll have um a link to this article where you can learn more about her in the description i wanted to um transition to our next accidental with a performance featuring Shruti Raja Sekar. So this is a, a performance that was sponsored by the Schubert Club. Shout out to everyone at the Schubert Club. It's a piece of music called Devotee. Uh, it features Carrie Shaw, Laura Healy, Nicholas Chalmers, Tim Takach, and Shruti Raja Sekar. Um, the Carnatic vocalist you'll hear featured here. So huge congratulations again. Here's a little bit of Devotee by Shruti Raja Sekar to get us to our next accidental. to cut it off. It's just so beautiful and, and so mesmerizing. So again, you were in the position of a presenter, a, a, a power position, decision-making position. You can give the audience the Enoch Chelsea's Deo that you know that they are expecting and that they'll come back for, or you can offer the audience what we just heard. Which direction do you go? And what's your justification if you have to justify? If I'm going to play that, if I'm going to air that? 
not air or put live on a stage, just in general, would you go to bat for it? And how would you go to bat for it as opposed to what the holiday classical audiences are used to hearing? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm uh, I'm not sure exactly how to answer because this is the first time that I've even I mean, because it is beautiful music. That, you know, that's an argument in itself. Sure, sure. So I could definitely make the argument that we need to include that to move forward and appeal to more listeners, mm-hmm. a, a broader listenership. Um, what, if you give up 30% of your hour to something new and experimental like that? I mean, I, I think that that, I'm not even going to say that that's daring. I'm going to say that that's a, a just a, a positive ratio to try to keep some of your base and attract some new as well. I think the point that I make uh, and, and maybe that I'm trying to make here even is that stakeholders, decision makers, we get hung up more on the tradition than a lot of the audience may. I don't see anybody finding that music objectionable, even in the context of holiday programming. I, f- I feel that that's something that people would love and write positive emails about. But again, maybe my perspective on the general audiences are are different, but I see that as a win. I don't see that as a risk at all. Sure. there's there, I'm, I'm sure that there are some listeners that, yeah. would, that would love it. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and, and of I course, give, there's always going to be somebody to hate something. I'm not saying that those people don't exist. There's somebody that's just right. waiting for you to say something I'm, wrong. I'm, yes. I'm just saying that what we talk about as risky programming, from my perspective, is, and I've said this before, is a surefire win. Not something that's a risk at all. You know, something that will definitely uh, be heard and be appreciated. So that's just what I try to uh, bring to the space and bring to the table. Just that affirmative, I don't know, instead of a, well, I don't know, you know, just just having having the positive attitude. Anyway, shout out and congratulations to Shruti. All right, we got one more accidental. Tell us what happened. And I think it needs a little (laughs) bit of this. Go for it. I'm reading from violinist.com. Laura Niles writes, Detroit Symphony condemns racial slur shouted by audience member during a jazz concert. Okay, so we're in we're we're in our holiday concert right. going mode again. People don't come to the concert hall anytime, but this time of year they come this one time. And what do they hear coming from the audience? What is a part of their experience? But the N word, or don't, maybe we don't. We know don't that. know that. Yeah, yeah they said we're more. not. They said well, we're not going to say what the slur was, but there was a slur. Mistakes were made, and so they posted all sorts of apologies and saying that you know that that there's no room for that sort of bigotry and and racism at uh, with the Detroit Symphony. What sort uh, of concert was this? This is the hilarious part to me. Cirrus Chestnut, uh, jazz um, band leader and pianist, uh, is performing the music of Vince Guaraldi. So this is a Charlie Brown Christmas classic show, Christmas, right? And somebody goes and yells a racial slur. They come back with the, the announcement on their Facebook page. The DSO is deeply disappointed by an incident that took place towards the end of Friday night's concerts. Now, I think this is interesting. It's near the end. Mm-hmm. Why near the end? Why there? When the audience members shouted a racial slur. Racism and bigotry have no place in orchestra hall and behavior like this is unacceptable. And we're currently investigating and will enact a permanent ban once we identify the ticket holder. Several things to unpack here. First of all, you wanted to point out that the racial slur was yelled from the audience at the end. Near the end. To me, that's I, I, I guess I, I, 
I'm curious about why or how you see that as significant, because I see a person who was just so fed up, you know, he was trying to hold it in. Oh, I'm trying to, you know, be a nice guy. But at the end of the day, I just don't want to see this on stage. So it finally jumped out at the end. That's what I imagine. At the end of the day, I see this is not the first time that Cyrus has played this show. Uh, It's it's a, a few years long tradition. Oh, sure. Okay, so anybody who bought a ticket to this knows where they're going. And I think that the person knew exactly what they were doing, and I'm just curious as to why. And I don't think they were holding it in. I'm going to push back because- I don't think they were holding it in. I I think that there was something strategic. I played, uh, shout shout out to the Phantom and the Phoenix, uh, DJ Philly, and all the uh, members of the Illharmonic Orchestra. We played the New Year's Eve show Mm -hmm. at the Kennedy Center, and it was clear, Scott- that a number of people saw the word orchestra and bought a ticket. (laughs) And? So I am sure that there could be someone who bought a ticket and didn't know it was going to be somebody black on stage. So I I don't even think that it could be that. I think the status or the tradition of going to the concert hall, even, you know, uh, foregrounds, what people know that they're buying tickets for. I I I see your point of view, but um, I'm I'm thinking that anybody who uh, pays attention uh, to the website when they're ordering tickets would see that. Well, um, I mean, someone now, who's using the N-word probably doesn't have the internet. We don't know. We, <laughs> we don't know that it was the N-word, but you know, you can certainly figure out that that might have been it well what do you so, think so what do you think of the dso's response as it relates to was it the n-word or what was it they they are just not saying what it is is that what's most appropriate i mean is it wrong to even for a white person to even type the word i mean what do you right. what, what do you think well actually in the uh, in the comments section somebody brings up that very thing um i'm not sure that this was the wise reaction by issuing this statement and threatening an investigation they're letting everybody who was not in the hall know what happened yes um, this kind of pl- publicity may be exactly what the perpetrators craving. People will come up with defenses of free speech and other anti-woke BS. Is that what you're getting at? I think that commenter is saying at the end of the day, this is posturing, this is virtue signaling, and it's all going to happen behind the scenes anyway. So it's not like y'all y'all are going to tell us. So why this? Why why even publish uh, this this official reaction to the to the incident? That's that's what I hear in that comment. Well, maybe it sends the message that it won't be tolerated, and if you do it, you're not going to be able to come back and see a, another another show. Um, it, casinos share information with each other about cheaters and thieves and stuff like that that go from casino to casino. And that so, was my question to you before we turned on the mic. So if we're talking about an equity-focused investigation, should they publish, if they find out who this person is, should they publish the name? If they, if they don't publish the name, should this be shared among arts institutions just like the casinos do? Don't let such and such buy a ticket because he's going to yell such and such during the thing or whatever. So you're gonna what get, about that? You're going to get him canceled. Well, I'm, I didn't say cancel the man, but you... You, you said the casinos don't let cheaters in chain wide. What if arts institutions had that same level of uh, of, of unity? You don't of, call of the emoji. <laughs> you know, you, you don't call that being canceled. 
if you can't go and see it. I mean, being canceled is fake. He can still go to Home Depot. He can still go, you know, arts canceled. Denim and diamonds, wherever those people go. He's who arts use canceled. That language, you know. So, so sure, symphonically canceled. <laughs> what, do you, what, what do you what do you think about that? Do, do you think that would be going too far? Do you think that would be appropriate? Mm. Sure, it's appropriate. Yeah, I'm going to say it's appropriate in my mind. Okay. Do you think that's shame, something that- Shame, 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 <laughs> shame. I don't know, because I, I think there's something to that you comment You think they'll be that, pleased? They, you think that they would be proud I mean, of what because, they well, slur? It, well, because it's not, I don't know. I, I think it's there's a, a thin line between seeking retribution and trying to punish someone and, and doing the equitable thing. Um but yeah, I, I kind of agree with the comment. What is this official statement? You know, you won't tell us the word that was said. Obviously, you're not going to tell us who the person is. We likely won't know the results of this right. investigation. So right. what is this? So um, I'll, I'll get right to it. Um, the, the thing that they're doing here is straddling both sides. So I would, I would just say in the future, just pick a side and, and be on it. Either you're going to say what the slur was and the person's name, and here's this picture, and or their, whoever's picture it is, or don't say anything at all. I mean, and we also have to face the fact that the tradition of orchestral music, the tradition of orchestras, the audiences they center, who they market to, who the programming is built around, is built around people who would use that language. He was there. You know, I didn't know that this concert was going on this weekend. I don't live in Detroit, so I'm outside of the uh, the, the 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 spectrum of of who they market to. But Scott, you have to admit that the cultivation and the maintenance of this one predominantly white audience, just generally in orchestral programming, has been a safe haven for people who like being squarely around white folks and listening to white music and looking at their all white yeah, orchestras. So, mm. you know, why wouldn't someone who would say something like this crop up out of that crowd? You say you yeah, now that you say that that's interesting and I wonder what it would be what it was like for that person in the proximity, you know, in his that in that person's section. Mm -hmm. If any if any if there was any backlash in the moment that, that's what i'm saying y'all just gonna sit there quiet <laughs> right y'all not gonna do nothing say nothing right so i wonder what happened there and i really think that as this goes on the reporters are going to have more access to people who are sitting around them and they'll probably flesh the story out a little bit but the violinist.com goes further than any of the other articles that i've seen so far they've got um uh some aud other audience members um one said it was shocking and disturbing when it happened. The crowd let out a collective gasp and the band paused for about half a second and carried on and continued to take us on a magical musical journey. And you had a little bit of a problem with, uh, well, before, with that comment. Well, before we even go on, you know, just what you just read, shocked and get, like, I, I'm not shocked. You know, like it, it's so interesting to me. God bless everyone listening to this. I'm not trying to isolate anyone or any communities. I know I have been, um, how, how did you describe me a little while ago? A, a statesman. So l let me just start by saying I'm not trying to make any uh, community sort of uh, uh, stereotypes or, or anything. That is item A. But item B is that this is not shocking. To me, again, with the audiences looking the way that they have looked for so long and the specific type of programming to maintain uh, and, and center this predominantly white Western perspective, of course, 
something like this would eventually happen. What What do you want me to say, that I'm shocked? I'm not. Because you have been a victim of it, and you're, you're outlining all of the exact reasons why a person in that environment would be shocked. You, okay, it's a you, you, we already know that it's a predominantly white environment, and the person probably thought they were going to go and hear some nice jazzy orchestral arrangements of Charlie Brown tunes that I would never expect somebody to utter a racial slur out loud in the middle of something like that. No, that would very much surprise me in that milieu. We, we still dealing with it. Um, we'll see what the, the DSO does about this. I, you know... Once upon a time, I would say publish the man's name, put his uh, hey, face, hang his, put, put hang his, his face on the, the cover. cash register, right. <laughs> <laughs> put his face on the cover of Symphony Magazine. Let everyone mm. know. But if they are saying they're going to ban him, you know, so let's talk about why they don't want something like this to happen again. So if they don't want something like this to happen again, other places, I would say they have a responsibility to share that information with, at the very least other local arts institutions, mm. and most equitably with every orchestra in the country. Again, not to embarrass, not to shame, not to perpetuate that sort of cycle of attempted hum uh, humiliation, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, but rather to create this safe space that these orchestras allege that they want to create. That's that, that's that's what I think. Am I going too far? Um, I, I understand your perspective. I'm glad the Cyrus Chestnut and friends were able to continue the show. I hope they're doing okay. We're going to transition into the second movement with a performance by Cyrus Chestnut and friends. This is their rendition of My Little Drum, as we all love to listen to this time of year. Cyrus Chestnut and friends perform music of a Charlie Brown Christmas. My Little Drum here to get us into the second movement. talk about uh in your younger years setting the mood for company maybe a, a special friend by putting some jazz on and, you and doing the vibe like that did you do that you know did you have a, a christmas twist to that would, would you put on the the vince tracks and all of that not stuff? one time <laughs> so what was your christmas party vibe then or your <laughs> your christmas gathering music well um early on in the night obviously it was just you know what whatever was on the mix CD of Christmas favorites, but my next door neighbor had, you know, a lot of international uh, Christmas recordings, so that was going on. But then um, I'd say after about ten o'clock, it was just dance music. We were just dancing. Yeah, yeah, that's how Christmas parties of the before four times always were. Right. If, if, if for me, if there's anything that. I have yet to experience since quarantine is the fun dress up 
Christmas party where you put on That's some right. clothes and you know drink your co- my my holiday cocktail. Um, I uh I like the uh, what were we just talking about earlier the the crown the apple crown sure. or maybe the vanilla crown and you know a little ginger ale or something. Put a sprig of rosemary in there to be mm. uh, extra festive and you know you got your holiday cocktail. You know so I don't know. I would like to host it. I don't know if we're going to have the time to, to right. do that this year because, you know, I go all out and like to do things right. So I don't know if you're you having a room a, for it. If you're having a Christmas party, baking Christmas cookies and and uh, doing the Christmas cocktails, invite me and Dell. We'll be there. And put on Little Drummer Boy and watch people go off. <laughs> I have a long um, kente cloth. Um, number that <laughs> oh very good <laughs> uh, a, a little jacket piece that I'm planning for whatever a holiday gathering or maybe we'll do a Kwanzaa gathering this year mm. I think that's what we'll do then you know mm. just invite folks for one of those days but anyway we aren't a Kwanzaa yet we're here in the second movement where Scott and I are going to share a piece of music that we've been spending some time with uh, this week I'll get us started in this week's second movement so in my job with ACO I've had the opportunity you know to meet more and more living composers and and really get into my new music bag that I love so much and a composer whose music I've really grown to appreciate um, is Tommy Doherty. He's a composer based over in the West Coast. He uh, studied over uh, on the East Coast. His music was read by the American Composers Orchestra back in June. So uh, an emerging composer of great, great promise with some incredible music out there and a tune that uh, he put me on to of his that I've been repeating in my earbuds is called Gross misconduct so this is a <laughs> concerto grosso Good. get it you know for for people keeping score at home scott what what's the what, what's a concerto grosso folks who have never heard that before what is it literally big concerto mm-hmm. and basically it's a it typically it's like a string orchestra right and and, and, a, and a solo is passed around to different groups to yeah. different parts of the different sections of the band yeah one of the ways that i always uh thought about delineating it was that it's a concerto for more than just a single instrument maybe mm. a section or a concerto for the whole uh ensemble anyway so that's typically uh, a type of piece that we think of you know back in the um back in the old days you know maybe even uh, before mozart you know we're talking about more baroque style music that mm-hmm. gets into that concerto grosso bag but this tune gross misconduct is very much uh contemporary it was um written uh by tommy doherty uh in part uh to fulfill the requirements of uh, a doctorate that he was working on over there um and it has a really cool sound to it i wanted to share a little bit of the ending here it's not just strings uh it includes some brass and some percussion and i think the use of all these instruments to create all of those really crunchy you know even uh beautifully dissonant sounds is really cool here's a little bit of it gross misconduct by tommy doherty
So you hear that percussion in there. You know, I, I feel like this piece really keeps you on the edge of your seat. You know, it has the very juxtaposed aesthetics that are quick in and quit out, a uh, quick out. I think it's so fun. You know, what 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 I was thinking about as we were uh, listening there, I know what a brake drum is because of classical music. Where it goes in a car, I don't know. <laughs> no clue. I could not begin. Maybe it goes under the hood, breaks up maybe by the wheel. I don't know. But it's an it's it's an instrument that a lot of percussionists use. And mm. that's and that sound kind of reminded me of that. Does it sound like that could have been a brake drum? It sure does. That somebody was banging on. It it may it may have been that. Anyway, so Let's just, you know, this podcast is called Triloquy. It is. This music, this this tune, Gross Misconduct, is very listenable and very interesting for me. It's my bag. I've always loved new music. I think sometimes, and I'll put the onus on the presenters, sometimes we baby audiences and don't give them as meaty of music to work with, to listen to, to engage as we think they can handle. I think. It goes without saying that a piece of music like this is one that you would really have to sell to somebody in a uh, uh, a decision making position in one of the more traditional areas of music, whether that be radio or live performance or whatever. You know, NPR has the extra eclectic spot uh, once a week where I know that a piece of music like this could very easily fit and right. be appreciated. What are your ideas of normalizing music of this aesthetic for an audience who, you know, may be more used to the the major triads and the and the Mozart, you know, style and approach to classical music? How do we normalize this sort of classical music as equally valid? If I, I know the way that you feel about the idea of a specialty show. You know that things are relegated to a specialty. Yeah, show. I don't like the idea of putting baby in the corner. Right. You know? So, um, you know, it, this is you know, it's like taking the criminal elephant, elephant, the criminal element away from cannabis possession. Mm. Right. So, if you expand, what what if extra eclectic no longer went by that handle, and instead, every night between ten and midnight, we, we got, hear new music. We music got, by living composers. Right. So, you know, you, you begin doing it that way and pretty soon, you know, it's creeping into the nine o'clock hour, you know, and then maybe it's a, a little bit more diffused. I think that's one step. Um, what do you, yeah, I, what, what, what do you do with people who don't necessarily know how to put music like this in their day or in, you know, their uh, classical music consumption? A lot of casual radio listeners, at, at least, let, let's stick to that, may just turn on the radio as background music. They just want something right. soothing. Some people want something to sleep to. Where would you suggest to the new new music listener to put this in their day or in their listening schedule? What would be your suggestion? About nine o'clock. So as you as you're so it's nighttime, but maybe you're not quite getting all the way settled yet. Yeah, you know, you you know, you might still be doing something in the workshop or you know, cleaning up around the house and maybe you want something to put a little extra spring in your step. Um, that really, that sound to me really encourages active listening. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to sit and give it your attention so that you, you can take in everything that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that you got to, you got to line it up when people are in a position to give it that attention, maybe mid afternoon, 
Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't know. Again, um, maybe I'm a unique listener driving in the car rush hour. That would get me through. Um, you know? In the morning? <laughs> no, and coming home. Okay. Yeah, but okay. maybe so in the morning. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to the old shipyard, you know. Here's here's somebody playing a break drum. You is know, it, I love it. Is that, go, is that going on your, your Christmas 2022 list? Maybe not for Christmas. I mean, I don't know. There's a certain aesthetic I like for Christmas, but I wouldn't be opposed. Maybe, you know, if, if this were on my playlist around the holiday season, I would, you know, make some crack about... Uh, Santa's workshop, and maybe this is what it sounds like. You can think about the elves really getting into some mischief, or I, I think there's a way to to contextualize anything. Or look, they're playing a ba- uh, a break drum. You know, they it's like giving getting giving your kids all these fancy gifts, and they end up playing in the boxes. <laughs> you know, we have a drum over here, right. but I'd rather play this punk of metal off of a car. That was an episode of uh, of Rugrats, I believe. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're onto something there. Anyway, huge shout out to Tommy Doherty. I don't know if that was a break drum or not but it, <laughs> it sounded it no, kinda, you're right it kinda, sounded like kind of sounded like it but yeah. incredible piece of music here here's a little bit of the uh ending here uh, of gross misconduct really incredible tune Nice period at the end of the sentence there. Whip crack? Yep. All right. What you got this week for a second movement? So there's this band that I've been listening to lately that uh, is called Do Nothing. And you, when you do a search for them, you have to do Do Nothing Band because otherwise you come up with uh, search hits like Why It's Okay to Do Nothing Sometimes for True Success, How to Succeed Doing Nothing, How to Be Successful by Doing Nothing. This is article after article. Mm-hmm. So Do Nothing is the band and the track is Adventures in Success. And I love this track because it has that groove. It has sort of a, a, a feel to it that I liked. But uh, you might remember years and years ago, Baz Luhrmann's Wear Sunscreen, where it was just this guy saying, you know, maybe you'll get married, maybe you won't, maybe you'll be rich and maybe you won't, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, you know, which was fine. And, you know, it had some good points in it, but I didn't believe him, you know, and it was kind of a blase, blase presentation. Do Nothing, Adventures in Success. I I like listening to the way that he delivers the lyrics because it's almost like he's saying, I know you're not going to do any of this, but you should do all of this. So the secrets of success, the first law of success, take inventory of your assets. Don't be modest. Don't be critical either. The second law of success, uh, write a description of the person that you would like to be and describe your personal dress, your home, your automobile, and you will become it. The third law of success, concentrate on a mental image of the person you would like to be. And they just string, you know, he expands on all of these laws and everything. Mm -hmm. But at the end of it all, I can kind of hear in his voice him saying, this is going to make it to like January 15th. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And all of this is in the song. Uh, All the lyrics are there, but... The, the ideas that I'm bringing forth, what I hear in it, no, that's subtext. It's you. Oh, you. 
rare individual, a unique creature. There has never been anyone just like you, and never will be. You have talent and abilities that no one else has. In some ways, you are superior to any other living person. The power to do anything you can imagine is within you when you discover your real self just by practicing a few simple laws of success. Take inventory of your assets. Don't be modest and don't be critical either. Be open and objective. Every good thing about a, so a little bit of those laws you were describing. Mm-hmm. How'd you come on this? How did that happen? Uh, this was a band that was suggested to me by a friend, and I have kind of been consuming their their stuff voraciously for, I don't know, like the last five or six days. Do Nothing is the band. Just a, a really high energy, fun, spontaneous kind of band. Good stuff. All right. Well, thanks for thanks for sharing that. Well, we're here uh, in the third movement where uh, this week's guests are Maria Clark and Maria Thompson Corley. They've come together um, to navigate the intense emotion, uh, the scars of suffering and religion, uh, religious passion in hymns and gospel tunes on a new album called Soul Sanctuary. It's on uh, Navona Records. And I think it's just uh, yet another really incredible example of the art that is really foundational to American music, what we should be considering early music in this part of the world, certainly classical music in this part of the world, and why it's important to continue to revive it and to um and to put it at the center of of what we're uh, thinking about when we use that phrase classical music so i was uh, very honored to have both of the uh, marias on the show we talk about soul sanctuary we talk about the importance of the spiritual and many of the cultural uh, implications and applications of uh, a study and a focus on this music so to get us into uh, the third movement we're going to hear one of the tracks from the soul sanctuary album this is uh, uh, Maria Thompson Corley and uh, Maria Clark uh, performing their edition of Glory, Glory, Hallelujah, a beautiful spiritual to get us into this week's third movement. Hope y'all enjoy. Because I was actually, uh, I felt this push and kind of pull between what I grew up with versus now I have to sing in this classical European style 
with all this extra vibrato, you know, <laughs> and that's not what I grew up listening to. You know, I started off in piano and my first piano teacher who I ever had was originally from Scotland. And I'm from this small town in Georgia called uh, Eatonton, Georgia, and nobody knows where it is. And I use Alice Walker as a landmark, you know, because I say, oh, Alice Walker is from my town. Mm. But um, and, you know, the her story uh, where she built the characters around the color purple came from my area. Mm. But um, so we did not grow up at all having access, you know, and then a lot of my colleagues in Atlanta, I work in Atlanta now and they'll say like, Maria, do you, uh, let's go over here to eat to this restaurant. You know, where such and such and such and such is. And I'm like, no, I don't. And they're like, oh, I forgot you didn't grow up in Atlanta. <laughs> I'm like, no, I, didn't. <laughs> I grew up in the country about 70 miles Southeast of Atlanta. So, um, we did not have access. Maybe if I had grown up near the city, I would have had more access to the arts and, you know, and to classical music. Mm -hmm. But particularly also where I was from, we did not have access to classical music. And this Scottish man ended up, you know, uh, marrying one of the women from our town. And she decided to retire and come back home. And they had lived in New York for years and they came back and he was the one, you know, it took someone from Scotland and who had lived in New York for years and who was a musician to come and introduce me to opera, introduce me to piano. And uh, he would have me listen to, uh, you know, operas on PBS and, and listen to uh, in, in my piano lesson. He would play Leontine Price, Jesse Norman. He, he would mm. not just do piano. He would expose me to all of that. So that was the only exposure I got to it. And actually uh, coming up, trying to sing in this style, I had this voice and I could sing in the style. And this was the type of gift that I felt God gave me. You know, I would have loved to have, you know, sung, sing like uh, Patti LaBelle or Aretha Franklin but or Whitney, but I just didn't have that type of uh, gift that was given to me. It was more the classical style gift. And I was singing in the choir at schools and things like that and trying to incorporate that, you know, in singing in the, the black church where I was from. A lot of them did not understand that style. So actually, I got made fun of a lot, hmm. you know, by my classmates and by even some adults who didn't even understand you know, the style and what was, you know, uh, because they had not been exposed to it. You know, right. a lot of times you would make fun of things that you haven't been exposed to. Mm -hmm. So um, having singing in that style and then also uh, trying to fuse that while keeping the integrity of the classical style of singing and trying to fuse that with the soulfulness that I actually grew up listening to in the church, at home, at home, my parents would play Motown. They yeah. didn't play, you know, you know, my grandmother. Now, I will say that my grandmother did love Mahalia Jackson and she loved they did not know anything about classical music. But every time Pavarotti came on uh, the television, everything stopped and we would all sit and listen to Pavarotti because my grandmother loved Pavarotti even though they knew nothing about opera. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, because, you know, he had that crossover appeal. So, uh, but trying to fuse the two 
uh, it was a, it's been a fine line. And then sometimes I have to be kind of reeled back in and, you know, and I, and I'm told Maria, well, that's too much. And you're kind of outside <laughs> of the style. Now you gotta, gotta bring it on back. And I, I, I will say that I did get reeled in a couple of times, a couple of times from Dr. Corley when we were recording. <laughs> and I was fine with that. She did give me a lot of freedom. I will say she gave me a lot of freedom, but I did get reeled in a couple of times, but I understood exactly what she was, the direction she was going and what she was saying. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it is a balancing act that you're trying to play between that classical kind of structured style versus the soulfulness and that soulful style that we, we are so familiar with. And, um, so my background was completely different than hers in that I grew up in Western Canada in a little town where my dad um, was a dentist and, um, you know, there were very few black people in this place. Mm. And um, I'm, I was born in Jamaica and my mom is from Bermuda. And although I've lived in the United States most of my life at this point. So, you know, when we talk about black culture, there are, you know, black cultures and um, they're not all exactly the same, but um, my parents who met in Montreal uh, at school in Montreal, um, we're in a, a group, a West Indian uh, choral group, and they sang some spirituals. They sang West Indian folk songs, and they sang some spirituals. And um, my grandmother actually was a pianist who attended the New England Conservatory. And my had some idea that I don't know where she got this from, that on Sundays, you should only listen to classical music like that. Those people were more elevated than other people. I don't know. Hmm. So um, I heard Handel's Messiah a lot growing up and um, did um, Western musical history all through, um, you know, and, and wanted to learn to play the piano because I, um, yeah, when from the time I was two, I guess my mom was teaching my brother. She had also taken some piano lessons. So, um, but on the other hand, um, I listened to a lot. I listened to popular music all along. And my dad, uh, who came to love classical music after he met my mom, um, listened to reggae, you know, we into the Bob Marley. We also had Mahalia. We had Roland Hayes, mm. um, had Paul Robeson, um, these classical recordings. And, um, you know, jazz. He loved Ella. He loved um, Carmen McRae and Sarah Vaughan and Joe Williams and Nat King Cole, all these people, all these luminaries. So, um, and as I was growing up, I, we had this in common that we both listened to Prince. You know, I, I was a fanatic for Prince and listened to all kinds of popular music and was trying to get more information about the music that was in the States, because at that time, there are Canadian content laws and we didn't get a lot of uh, you had to have a certain amount of Canadian content and trying to tap into like, what is the black culture like in the States? Because we felt really isolated. So mm. um, anyway, but my uh, my whole thing with um the style and, you know, I, I'm not a hierarchical person really in, as far as like, well, this is art and this is not art. You know, I'm more like, if, does it move me? Does it touch me? How am I feeling? Does this, you know, go with my feelings? So if I get into my car and my son doesn't really listen to the classical station. So like he's listening to whatever. And if I like it, I like it. It's like, Oh, and Lizzo. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm down. Mm-hmm. I'm with it, you know? Um, so, I mean, for me, it's just at, when I decide to arrange something, you know, there's a certain amount of, okay, well, I'm wanting the melody to be this at this point, like my choice to have this climax on this note or whatever. And then, um, you know, with within the, the tradition of like, 
being able to spin it and, you know, do some of, of what Marie was talking about. I mean, when I worked with um, Daryl Taylor was kind of one of the first people who convinced me that I could compose things. And, um, you know, that was something that Daryl always did. There would be, and I know with, with there's a great tradition in spirituals of there's a climactic thing and it's written this way and then you make it a little extra to show mm -hmm. what you can do. So yeah, I was with that and perhaps had a little bit more. I know I had a lot more tradition of, okay, this is what is on the page. And yet from the time I was small, I could improvise and I could play by ear. So when you do that, obviously you're, um, yeah, you're, it's coming out of your head. And I was so glad that Maria came up with the idea of us doing a couple of improvisations mm -hmm. because then that was, you know, so much more the church experience. And that's something that I love to do. And then you're really, truly, truly, truly collaborating. It's not, you know, you can't just look at the music and do what's on the page and you have to listen to each other and follow each other. And, and um, yeah, that, so that true spirit of really uh, the soul of church Mm -hmm. I, I would say, um, you know, that was that was a wonderful thing for me, too. Dr. Corley, I want to hear more about uh, what Ms. Clark is talking about regarding being reeled in. I mean, what was the collaborative nature of creating these recordings and, you know, staying true to what you wanted the, the project to be in the process? Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that? Sure. I mean, well, first of all, the project came from Maria. It was Maria's idea. And she reached out to me about wanting to record my my music. So, you know, um, that was the one thing um, I should definitely mention. Um, but it was just like, there were some times where, you know, if there's an embellishment that I felt like um, maybe wait until closer to the cli climax to start embellishing on this particular melody, maybe let it, because um, it was, a you know, if it's a long uh, a piece that's quite long, then, you know, maybe we start off and then we build the embellishment more as we go along. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, there's some temples that I was like, you know, she's got such a fabulous voice and, um, you know, it, it, I mean, there were some things that I wanted to go maybe a little bit faster and she was feeling a little bit slower, but there was one thing that she took way slower and it just made it so much better. It was so powerful to me that Unto the Hills, when I conceived of it, it was not because it, it was an arrangement that I did for my mom and her friend, and they were going to do something for someone's funeral. My mom asked me to arrange this. So I made something quite simple. The piano was simple for that reason. I mean, my mom plays, but you know, she didn't as much as I do. So um, yeah. And then her friend is quite a nice soprano voice. And so it was a you know, it wasn't nearly that slow. And Maria wasn't even familiar with that song because it's a hymn. It's not a spiritual, so to speak. It's, you know, mm -hmm. I can't remember who wrote it, but it was like, it was meaningful for me because I had arranged it for my mom to have it on the recording. And when Maria did it, she did it so much slower and it was just majestic. You know, it just took it into another realm. So, you know, <laughs> didn't yeah. reel that one in. And I thought it, it was... <laughs> Yeah, Miss Clark, I wonder if you'll uh, speak a little bit more to the freedom that the spiritual allows. You know, when we talk about arrangements of these spirituals in particular, we aren't talking about this, you know, dictionary of spirituals that we all go to and this is how they're sung. So often these songs are presented through uh, unique and oftentimes original arrangements of the songs. Do you do you feel like that 
offers you more room for musicality, maybe even uh, more challenge, more responsibility? What are your ideas about the free nature, the relatively free nature of the spiritual? Um, I think we, we have a responsibility to be free and we should. Mm -hmm. I think we have to still, again, there's that balance though. You have to also keep the integrity of the tradition. And I, and, and like anything, you can go too far in the opposite direction as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I often, uh, I, I have to admit, I often do get on to my students here at Spelman and I have to remember and, and kind of, pull, you know, say stop Maria, because I have to remember they have not grown up in the generation that we have. Mm -hmm. And I feel like maybe our generation, Maria and I's generation might be the generation maybe one of the last generations where we're still kind of connected to the elders and that style of singing. And then this newest generation, uh, what do we call it? Generation X, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, I forget. I'm, I'm generation Y millennial. So they're, they're even the generation Z's and even the generation alphas that are coming along. Oh, okay. Alpha. Okay. Is it alpha? Okay. And I have to remember that, you know, they don't have the same experience necessarily that I had coming up and they might be from different areas or they might be from a more metropolitan area than I'm from. And they, and I tell them, I said, you're, you're just singing this way too straight. You're singing it way too proper. Part of that freedom is also in the dialect. You know, mm -hmm. because a lot of these spirituals, the the arrangers are still writing in the dialect, and some of Maria's are as well. And and there's freedom also in the enunciation, right? And and sort of connecting back and I to the way that our ancestors actually talked. You know, because I told them, I said, you know, these spirituals were born out of slavery. Do you really think that, you know, this, the, our, the slave would have been pronouncing every T, you know, like with a hard British T, or they would mm -hmm. have been saying, you know, the R's just so, you know, those consonants, you know, so, and then they don't understand a lot of the enunciation of the dialect. So then I, I try to teach them that. And then, you know, there's some of it that is like, okay how much can you teach versus how much of it has to just be natural and, and bred and you have to be born and grow up with it. So um, I don't know, to be honest with you, um, Gary, it just kind of gets on my nerves. And I will say <laughs> that it works my nerves <laughs> to hear someone sing a spiritual that is just so proper and every enunciation of every consonant in the words is so proper mm -hmm. and they sing everything just straight. This is not Bach. This is not, like I said, Mozart. This is not an academic exercise. This is something that you have to feel from your soul, from your spirit. And you, we can even bring up the, the spirit of, say, you know, our other genre that, uh, that we created, jazz. Right. You know, where you get that freedom to improv and to just feel the music as you go. We're following the notes. Yes, we are. We have to keep the integrity. But 
if I can't feel something and if you're not touching my soul and it has to be honest, not just that you're going to sit up here and do a whole bunch of, of runs to just show off that you right. can do it and, mm-hmm. and to try to, to, to try to be a crowd pleaser, you know, do you, it has to come out of your heart and your spirit. And I, if I don't feel anything and you just sit up here and sing it like a Puritan, I mean, <laughs> that's not what a spiritual is to me. Right. That's just right. me. Yeah. Dr. Corley, I wonder if, if you'll weigh in on the on the issue of dialect, you know, I've talked with a lot of people, you know, I've I've collaborated with uh, Dr. Louise Toppin, who speaks mm-hmm. on the importance of dialect. At the end of the day, there are uh, many people, especially folks who are not black, who may feel, you know, awkward using some of those dialects at the same time. That's a part of the respect of the genre, of respect of the history of what the music is. How do you engage or advise the conversation when it comes to people's comfort levels with saying, you know, wade in the water and, and as opposed to wade in the water? You know, how do you how do you inspire people to dig into that dialect? <laughs> that sounded so silly. Um, <laughs> okay, so to be honest, like as you can hear, I, I mean, I didn't grow up in Georgia, you know, so I mean, my speech patterns when I moved to the States were seen as too proper by some people. Like when I went to school, there are people who, you know, so, but I, but I think that again, it's like when, when you choose to sing a particular song and no one's forcing anybody who's not comfortable to sing a spiritual, right? So if you're going to bring yourself into that world, you know, it's like if you're singing in French, I mean, you have to have some idea of how to pronounce things in French. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, there are shades of, you know, like some people, the dialect, like I remember the first when I was first moving to the South, I mean, some of those di- heavy, heavy Southern accents, I was like, excuse me. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I mean, and it's the same if you listen, there's subtitles sometimes if you watch a film from Great Britain and someone is, you know, from like some real Cockney area or whatever, Scottish you know, mm-hmm. sometimes it's like, excuse me, you know, so um, there, there are shades. So I think, you know, I don't think someone has to, if it feels like you're almost putting on blackface to use a particular kind of inflection that is just not, your mouth does not want to do, and it's going to sound just as ridiculous. But I think that everybody, I think if they are a musical person, they should have an ear and be able to listen and be able to, you know, you don't have to speak the Queen's English all the time, regardless of who you are, you know, so I think people can, you know, you drop a couple, you drop some final consonants. I think most people can do that, you know, um, not clip things and maybe they won't sound like, you know, they grew up in a small town in Georgia, but I mean, they won't sound like they're trying to be, you know, Queen Elizabeth, or I guess now that she's gone, Prince King Charles, whoever, Mm -hmm. anyway, singing a spiritual. So, you know, that would be my thing. I I would be willing to, to compromise a little bit on, you know, being a hundred percent like a field hauler. If that's not, if that's not going to work for you, or you can just say, you know, I'm just really not comfortable and sing Debussy. It's great stuff, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, so, so Dr. Corley, let, let me ask you, you know, quite squarely and, and quite frankly, yeah. Can can the Negro spiritual, can the Afro-American spiritual be performed equitably and justly by individuals and ensembles who are not Black? Hmm. 
I, you know what? Um, I know that on one hand, if someone's singing, a, if I sing a song that is not my experience, or, you know, someone is singing a song that is not their personal experience, which most songs are not the singer's personal experience, then, um, you know, they're already having to act to having to wade into something. I think that um, it's possible. And I think it depends sometimes on for me personally, and I know that not everybody feels this way. There's some words that sort of jar me coming out of a mouth of someone who they don't seem to fit the, mm -hmm. the profile. And maybe that is partially because of the attempts that have been made to erase us from the equation of having culture and being excellent. And so, you know, I mean, I'm not absolutely hardcore in that regard. I think there's some words that, you know, Deep River, for example, you know what it's based in, you know, it's a code song and it's about, you know, campground and this heavenly thing is not uh, maybe specifically what the words seem to say. On the other hand, I mean, it's such a gorgeous melody and it could have two meanings in, in, you know, if you aren't thinking about it as a code of escape that um, I think, you know, somebody else could sing it and it could sound quite beautiful and it could be quite heartfelt if you're thinking of a different emotional experience. But, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I don't have a firm opinion that I am going to say, because honestly um, I really love to hear these spirituals sung by the people who, for whom they would have been a natural part of our history. Um, and um, I, but I do think that there is the possibility of feeling something very deeply and relating to it and putting it across um, because it, where I, where I come from sometimes is, is that, okay, is my Chopin authentic? Cause I'm not Polish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I've, you know, I feel that I can experience it and feel it. Now there are no words. So there's the words are, are another thing, but um, I don't know. I think if, if someone can do what Maria is saying and really internalize the feeling and the emotion and bring, you know, a level of empathy to it, I think that, you know, it's possible. I've seen a lot of people who would, like you could pull up a million recordings and say, yeah, but what about that? Are you, mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> you know, because I've heard some egregious choral, especially renditions of spirituals that I'm like, oh no, no, <laughs> no. You had so many other choices. No, you know, <laughs> but um, I don't know. I don't know that I fully answered your question because I don't have a fully formed opinion that is this, you know, every single case is this. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's sort of a case by case basis and, you know, I mean, it, it is a very nuanced conversation and, and idea. Miss Clark, I would love to get your idea on that, but I'll, I'll add the sort of other side of that discussion to it, you know, in the same way that, you know, some of us black people may feel a way about hearing people who are not black using a certain affect. I imagine there are lots of black people who sort of feel away when they hear that operatic technique coming from your body, coming from your instrument. How do, how do you engage that dissonance for people, folks who can't quite make the connection between our, our history, our ancestry as it relates to the spiritual matched with the Western European operatic technique? 
Okay. Um, that just, that question kind of puts me in the mind of a recent performance that I did, and it was for uh, the Pink Frog organization um, here, and it's a breast cancer awareness organization, and they did a fundraiser, and it was at Morehouse. And um, my uh, collaborative pianist, uh, Trey Clegg, and I performed Maria's I Want Jesus to Walk With Me. Mm-hmm. And I guess I was a little concerned because Karen Sheard, you know, who is one of the main Clark sisters, was headlining. Mm. They also had Tham Yu's uh, marching band come up to play and dance. Oh, so and this I, was a black event. Oh, yes, it was a black <laughs> event. So, you know, and then they had jazz and they had a jazz pianist. And then I'm thinking, okay, I'm getting ready to sing in the operatic style. I'm singing an. Uh, a spiritual, but in the, the operatic style, nonetheless. And then I just thought, well, I'm going to make sure I put a little hot sauce in it, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I'm going yeah. to put my seasonings in it, you know, and I've seen these, some Facebook postings where they say, you know, black people put seasoning into this, the ancestors tell us to stop. Yeah. Uh, that kind of thing. <laughs> but, you know, I did feel that I I did my best anyway to try to put the soulfulness into it, even though I'm singing in this kind of vertical, uh, tons uh, tons of vibrato, a uh, head voice operatic style. I'm not belting, you know, this gospel and grinding and 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 you know all of this kind of thing for gospel uh, style. But I'm singing in my classical style. But I'm going to also put my soul and spirit into it and it it ran over came across very well i mean they were clapping during mm-hmm. the singing of it mm-hmm. you know every time i would hit a high note or, mm-hmm. or maria was talking about the climaxes every time i would reach a climax climactic area in the in the spiritual they would start clapping while i was singing mm-hmm. i got a standing ovation when mm-hmm. i finished mm-hmm. so um i think, you know, a lot of times we might kind of um, also stereotype based on some of our own experiences. You know, I, again, you know, share it with you that I had experiences where I was actually made fun of in my hometown for uh, playing and singing classical music. And I mean, literally, I did one piano competition when I was a kid. And um they were throwing paper up on the stage at me. And I, you know, my mom was there. She was upset. I, I went off the stage crying. And, you know, I had those little flashbacks. You know, we don't ever forget, you know, no matter how old you get, you don't ever forget those experiences. But um, I also realized that I'm singing also, these are, um, I'm, in, I'm in the metropolitan area. I'm in Atlanta. You know, I'm at Morehouse where, you know, they have more exposure, even though they it's a black event and as a black crowd, they do also have the exposure to the arts Mm -hmm. uh, in general, more so than the area where I'm from. And the area where I'm from, I think, is getting better. Like they're becoming they're they're coming to appreciate the arts more and they're getting more um, exposure to the arts. Um, And then there's. social media and the internet. And, you know, recently I did perform again at my hometown and I would, 
I received a very warm uh, reception from them. Again, singing Maria Spirituals. So (laughs) uh, I think Maria Spirituals helped me out a lot. That's what it was. You (laughs) see me when you were a kid. I mean, I I think the, the level of commitment that you put into these songs, I mean, I think it's just undeniable. And I think that I don't know if, um, you know, and as children, maybe we can have that level of commitment, but a lot of times it takes some seasoning in our lives for us to really, um, you know, uh, and I mean, just the not being intimidated by the fact that, you know, you're doing something that's really, really different Mm -hmm. is also a little hard when you're a little kid, but you know, I, I, I believe that people, do respond to excellence, even if it's not something that they would choose, first of all, if they were, you know, going to go out and buy something, first of all, I mean, they, they hear something and they see something and it's like, you know, wow, that's amazing. You know, mm-hmm. that's amazing. And I know having heard you sing that song, um, uh, you know, via live, but also um, on video, I mean, I know that you really, really put everything into that song and you know all of the songs so I'm not I wasn't surprised at the end of the story was that they gave you a standing ovation honestly I knew that that was gonna translate and um you know I just wish people would be more open I gave a talk once I was asked to at this uh community center in sort of the so-called inner city whatever you want to call it um in Lancaster and so it was called um I called it uh, classical music for urban kids or something like that. I can't remember, but you know, cause I'll, I came in and this kid says, how are you going to rap? And I'm like, well, uh, no, I'm not really, <laughs> you would want to hear me rap. So I played different classical pieces. And I said, you know, we all speak different languages, but we all have the same emotions. Mm-hmm. So if I say, I love you in French, if I say, I love you in whatever, you know, whatever, it still means I love you. So, you know, and I, I chose things that I thought were, you know, kind of more rhythmic, some of them, but I also, I also played Shimon's Traumerai and I explained what it was about. And I thought, okay, it was warm. There was no air conditioning. I'm thinking they literally are going to take this and fall asleep, <laughs> but um, they were still awake and they listened. It wasn't super, you know, I didn't go for two hours or something like that. And then afterwards, a couple kids came up and said very quietly, like they didn't want anybody to know, I really like Moonlight Sonata, you know, or something like that. Now, um, Again, I'm not hierarchical. I don't think that they're better or worse for having this. But I think, you know, what I was saying is don't put yourself in a box. The people you're going to school with now are probably, you. I hate to say this, but you're probably not going to know most of them when you're an adult. They're right. going to be a few that will stick with you. And for you to put yourself into a box and limit yourself because you think somebody else is thinking something and this person is probably, you're probably not even going to know them in 10 years. I mean, you know, you don't have to like everything. but for me, if, you know, it touches my emotions and other music touches my emotions. And I, I just, this is my thing. It's like, you know, these assumptions, like it's got to be this or else there's something wrong. It's not black enough. It's not whatever. Mm-hmm. enough. If it's not, I mean, you know, and are white people doing that? Like those white boys who listen to rap, they're not thinking, well, this isn't white enough. I'm mm-hmm. not saying there aren't some people who are, you know, just so very racist that they're like, no, this is not white. But I mean, most white people are just living their lives, yeah. you know, they just do their thing. And we're like, well, that's not really black. And like, you know, we can flow into all kinds of areas and like enrich them. The Williams sisters, you know, were they black enough when they started playing tennis? I mean, so anyway, off my and- soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I appreciate it. I, I would be remiss, Dr. Corley, if 
uh, I didn't point us toward that phrase classical music or that word classical. You know, we we use it so often. And my general sermon is that, you know, that phrase is treated differently in India as it is in China, yeah. as it is in other yes. parts of the world. So, yes. you know, I believe that we have to shift our thinking around that phrase to really acknowledge what our classical music is, you know, starting with those field haulers and the spirituals. And of course, you know, the traditions codified by uh, indigenous communities as well. Uh, mm -hmm. So all, with all of that said, Dr. Corley, I wonder if you can make a case for the spiritual as American classical music, not something that should exist outside of that concept of classical music, but something that belongs inside of it. Well, sure. I mean, um, I, I mentioned like these beautifully constructed melodies that are, you know, have created a rich uh, just foundation for so many compositions and not just by black people. I mean, you know, people hearing this music and it was just undeniable, but I, I've tried to start using the word European classical music. Mm. And I, I didn't do that in this conversation because there are so many classical musics. Right. And um, that, you know, it, it, it has become, there's a very interesting video about um, is Europe. They say it's classical music, white supremacy. And what he, the person really means is European classical music and the idea that this is the pinnacle of all music and everything else is, you know, not quite as good, not quite as worthy, not quite as important. Um, and that the only way that it is elevated is by incorporating it with a European classical tradition. And, um, you know, it was, it was a really a brilliant point. And um, so as far as that goes, I suppose, again, with my hierarchical thing, I mean, obviously we all want to feel respected and um, appreciated. And so when you start saying words like classical music, it, has this cachet of like, okay, well, this is something that's, you know, um, more, I don't want to use the word important, but you know, like, you know what I mean? It's like, mm -hmm. it's up here because it's classical music. You know, this other stuff is just, you know, anybody can do that or it's not as skillful. Whereas I say, okay, I'd like to see you try to produce a song that is a hit around the world. Like, you know, right. production is orchestration really, you know? So, but, but I mean, that's my thing. It's like, I don't really so much care if people want to call it classical or not classical because once you start getting into that world of well you know is somebody calling it this is somebody calling it that then your mindset is i'm trying to impress somebody i'm trying to legitimize myself by being included in this little club by a bunch of people who for whatever reason chose to exclude me and just close to excuse me because of who i am so it's like you know if i can get into that country club then I'll feel that I have moved myself forward. And then you're hanging out with all these people who maybe you don't want to hang out with. Now, classical music isn't like that. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I think if you want to look upon it as, you know, on a par with any other music that goes back, you know, for many years and was created and shows genius, then absolutely. If that's what classical music means to you, then yes, I make that case. But I'm not... I'm not really concerned about the semantics of it. I think the, it speaks for itself. Its beauty speaks for itself, no matter what people want to call it or not call it, or who wants to maybe denigrate it and say something to cast dispersions on it. I'm not listening to them because I mm -hmm. think they're wrong. And 
and and I think I certainly think that uh, applies to the album Soul Sanctuary. No matter what you want to call it, it's beautiful music, it's genius music, and I'm I'm so appreciative to the both of you that it exists now in in our our lexicon of of recordings. Uh, well, thanks, Maria Maria Clark. <laughs> well, she, Ms. Miss <laughs> Clark, I'll, uh, I'll I'll ask you the the final question, and it and it sort of shines back on a point you were making earlier about. Uh, the younger generation's lack of proximity to, you know, the elders and, and that sort of culture. So as we continue to move forward in history, you know, further and further into the 21st century, what do you see as the role of the spiritual? We aren't speaking in code anymore, or maybe we are, you know, what what do you, what is the significance moving forward of this uh, seminal foundational American genre of music, in your opinion? I think it still uh, will continue to be relevant, extremely relevant. And I think it still has a even brighter future to come um, because um, as Maria uh, or Dr. Corley has stated that it is universal and we still feel the same feelings today that we felt yesterday and in yesteryear. Um, I also feel like honestly and it's, it's, it's tragic that it takes a tragedy in order, you know, for uh, us to think about being inclusionary. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with uh, the, the killing of George Floyd, uh, the amping up of the Black Lives Matter movement and all the police killings of Black Americans, um, it had there has been a wave of uh, Black Lives Does Matter in the classical uh, music mm-hmm. musical realm. And, you know, more of them, even with NATS, you know, National Association of Teachers of Singing Organization, they have uh, created, you know, from the Black Lives Matter movement and, and from all this inclusionary talk and, and, and action, they have created, you know, uh, with their general auditions, student auditions that they do every single year. Uh, they have uh, a Negro spiritual uh, competition that they do, uh, and they uh, alternate it yearly with the Hall Johnson competition. So the Hall Johnson spiritual competition is uh, one that the students can enter. And then the next year they'll do uh, the Negro uh, or African-American spiritual Negro spiritual competition that will be encompassing of different composers. But, you know, one is Jess Hall Johnson. Mm -hmm. They had never thought of doing anything like that before. You know, we had Black Lives Matter in classical music. Um, And, you know, there have been even at I I teach full time at Spelman and then I uh, also teach uh, voice part-time at Emory University, which is, is a, we know a PWI. And um, since also the Black Lives Matter movement, Dr. they've invited Dr. Louise Toppin down to do a, um, uh, she did a workshop and masterclass on African-American composers. Maria, uh, Dr. Corley was actually included. One of her oh. songs was included <laughs> on it. And uh, she's done um, a workshop on, she did a, uh, divided it also with workshops on spirituals mm-hmm. and here are all these white students. There is not one black uh, vocal student that I saw, you know, um, and that I've taught anyway, I, I think there have been a couple in the last two years, 
but the the vocal students there are largely Caucasian, Indian, and Asian. You might have a couple of Hispanics come through here and there, but Black, not so much, other than in the jazz department there. Mm. And she, Dr. Toppin was teaching these uh, uh, kids, you know, the correct style and how to feel the African-American spiritual. And, you know, they never, I don't think they ever had that before, you know, and also thanks uh, and, and uh, to Brad, uh, um, uh, Dr. How- uh, Bradley Howard, uh, who, you know, is thinking of these things too there. And I think that has happened not only here at some of the schools here is happening all across the country and maybe all, all across the world. Well, that you would know, choose the answer to my question about is it, is it authentic or is it, you know, can these things be performed with integrity? Because with the right education and the education is happening, then, you know, anyway, mm-hmm. sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's okay. And, and that's a good point as well. I'm, you know, whether they can feel it authentically, um, it depends. And I'm not quite sure maybe if they've grown up a lot around black culture, but, you know, even for them to want to learn about it, even for them to be willing to take a chance in performing it in front of people. And, you know, I did have a couple of students who I wanted them to sing um, a song by an African-American composer and they said, well, I just don't feel that I would do it justice and it's not my experience. So I feel like it's appropriation or I feel like, you know, and and they just didn't did not want to disrespect the culture in their eyes. Mm. But um, I think because uh, in this field, we're being we're, we're opening it up to being more inclusionary. You know, Atlanta Opera is trying to to, to do more collaborating with uh, Spelman, Morehouse, Clark Atlanta, and you have opera companies all over the country that are trying to have these HBCU initiative programs. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the spiritual will continue to be relevant. And I I think it will continue to uh, be a soul soother to a lot of people. You know, it helps a lot of people get through things and get through hard times in their lives. And I think uh, we will always call upon the spiritual to, 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 to be a tool for that in our lives. Maria Thompson Corley there with soprano Maria Clark in their incredible rendition of I Want Jesus to Walk With Me. Of course, Scott, that spiritual we were talking about last week when you brought in the Montgomery Variations by Margaret Bonds. That is the spiritual that uh, much of that tune is uh, based on. There are actually a couple of people who really appreciated having that piece of, of music on their radar. I thought we had talked about it on Triloquy before. Uh, maybe the Montgomery not. Variation? Yeah, oh. m- maybe not, but they appreciated it. Caesar ordered the score. He ready to conduct the thing now. Oh, nice. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, when we talk about the spiritual and all of its iterations and the way that it's been used in and out of classical music structures, you know, I'll ask you um, what uh, I asked um, uh, Maria Clark 
um, I believe it was Maria Clark at the end of of the the interview who you know spoke to why the spiritual just conceptually is important and why it should be continued uh, to be studied and uh, listened to and performed, celebrated. How do you answer that question from your position in the arts? Why the Negro spiritual? Why is this something that we should continue to uh, uh, to, to share and platform? Personally, I think that they are a crucial teaching tool. And I think that by remembering the music, we're remembering the reason why the music was made and sung. Mm. And we can maintain that connection to our history in a healthy way, um, especially now as we get further and further away from uh, uh, slavery and the diaspora. And even, for, you know, we can say about the same thing about the Holocaust, mm -hmm. the further we get away from it and the, and the, and the memories start to fade. And then that allows those same things to start happening again even though it you know, wasn't that, all that long ago like right you know. correct correct uh what i'm saying is is that you know if it's not kept at least close to our minds then it can happen again and i th i think that taking uh the spiritual and and learning about the the uh, the reason for it behind it is a very healthy way to do it. Plus, we have to keep saying the names, of, you know, like Paul Robeson and Henry Thacker Belay, and yeah. and uh, keeping those uh, names near the front of our mind. I mean, just think about the reality that there were not indentured servants, not sharecroppers. There were straight up slaves during World War II. In the United States, you know, the last slave was not uh, emancipated until 1942. Mm. So, you know, this this is something that you know we have to continue to keep front of our minds, and you know, something that uh, the music of that time has has helped us, you know, uh, remember and you know, turn again, you know, the lotus that has come from that mud. You mm -hmm. know, we, we have this beautiful music. So, a huge thanks. Uh, once again, to uh, Dr. Maria Thompson Corley and to Maria Clark, such uh, an incredible album. I'll have links in the description for y'all to check that out. Uh, but for now, we're going to jump into uh, the final movement. We're, we're running a little long this week, but we're going to get into this uh, final triloquy movement with a little K-pop. Uh, I, I had you know, one of my work trips to New York last week. Dell came with me. Uh, shout out to Jonathan, uh, guest and uh, guest host. Uh, on the uh, Triloquy podcast, shout out to uh, Jonathan, um, took, took us to a K-pop musical, and I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Here's an arrangement of some uh, classic, classical K-pop to get us into the final movement. I'll talk a little bit more about this musical on the other side. So this K-pop musical, the setting of it is the tech rehearsal before a giant K-pop performance. Now, before I even get too far, there may be folks who are unfamiliar with K-pop. The only reason I knew what that was was because of the artist Psy 
you know, and I guess over 10 years ago now, the tune uh, Gangnam Style. Oh, yeah. Maybe people uh, remember the, tu- uh, the tune Gentleman and uh, sort of preparing for this, just returning to side to see what was going on. He has a new hit out. It's called That, That on YouTube. I, I think now it has nearly 400 million of views. It's, it's something how something can be so huge and just off of my radar, you know, off of other people's radar. Anyway, that is how I learned about k-pop korean pop music so when i was invited to this musical i'm like okay here we go k-pop i'm gonna go in with an open mind so you know of course it kicks off with one of those big um boy band boy group k-pop performances you know a la bts and all of that sort of thing right and as i'm watching i'm like okay we have k-pop stars here I'm, i'm gonna be appreciative oh wait these aren't k-pop stars these are actors who are not uh, lip syncing, they are actually performing because they're trained in musical theater. So, you know, right off the bat, I had to reframe sort of my thinking around this performance as not celebrating K pop artists, but celebrating actors, cele- celebrating people who are, um, are trained in uh, the theatrical arts, you know. So, from there, you know, I'm really enjoying it. And the folks in the cast start to get emotional because, you know, as people who keep up with uh, Broadway know, this show was abruptly cut. It was abruptly canceled. So I'm sure people had plans. Maybe people were coming from out of town, perhaps even uh, from out of the country to see them perform in a Broadway show. But now it's been canceled. So the emotions were very much there. And at the end of the show, one of the uh, lead actors made the point that Broadway audiences have to support BIPOC shows. So he gave a special shout out to the current um, black show on Broadway. I think it's called Ain't No Mo. You know, just saying that audiences, y'all got to do your part. They're out here canceling um, BIPOC led shows and we need your support. Broadway is something that I can see as being this ivory tower thing as we talk about, you know, that concept in classical music. But from my perspective, it was one of the more progressive things. I'm thinking about Rent. I'm thinking about The Lion King and all of these huge shows that get all of this attention. But diversity in these sorts of arts must also be an issue. As a as someone who um, has a history in acting, do you see? Did you see Broadway as one of those immovable ivory towers that centers? a canon and centers a, an audience through that canon? Only from the the vantage point that I had, never actually walking up and down Broadway. Mm-hmm. But, right, b- right. But, but the assumption with Broadway comes Les Mis, Phantom, what else? What are the, what are, Rent. Cats, You, you mentioned maybe. Rent and Cats, <laughs> sure. Right. All these shows that I'm not going to see. But there's loads of other shows that are happening that we never hear about because, you know, it's either off-Broadway or off-off-Broadway. Yeah. Um, and your question again was? Do you uh, do you see uh, Broadway as one of these ivory tower institutions that need to come to, you know, pay the piper when it comes to diversity and, and programming? You know, uh, uh, an Asian-led... Broadway show about something that is so ubiquitously Asian, in this case, Korean. But I, 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 I think it's appropriate to say that the culture of K-pop at this point has uh, spanned the world. You know, I'm talking about it. Mm. I, I know what it is. So, you know, I, I guess for me, I just never 
put myself in those positions. I can say there needs to be more black shows on Broadway. I guess I never saw the issue of uh, there being an absence of Asian-led shows on Broadway as well. And again, to hear the point made from the stage, we need y'all to support BIPOC-led um shows on Broadway for these things to survive, for people to continue to stage these things. I just had never considered it and yeah, thought either. about it. I had never thought about Broadway as having that problem. Do you think that Broadway shows are doing better than orchestras right now as mm-hmm. far as that diversity? My assumption would be yes, but the the audience looked pretty similar to a to a classical music concert if i'm gonna be honest i mean there were some people of color we're also talking about new york city one of the most diverse cities in the entire world so it should certainly be more diverse than it tends to be i guess Mm. i would say yeah no i i never held broadway up as that you know the golden or the the ivory tower or whatever i was always more interested in what was happening at the at the smaller venue down around the corner you know yeah the shoestring budget and I'm I'm there, you know, when it comes to many things, you know, supporting the small mom and pop restaurant and so, you know, local businesses and and that sort of thing. I saw people on stage at this K-pop musical realizing their dream. So again, mm-hmm. you know, and shifting my perspective on this from looking at K-pop stars on stage to looking at actors who have learned how to pretend to be K-pop stars, it just really um Inspired some appreciation for me that I hadn't had before. And no reason for the abrupt cancellation that, that, that you know of? I mean, not, not that I know of, but the argument is that at least what was being argued from you know the member of the cast at the end of the show was that support of BIPOC-led things is hard to come by. Mm. And when people feel like tickets aren't selling this way or that way, they'll just pull the plug on mm. something and it's our responsibility to support those things. Yeah, keep in mind that it's not just the livelihood but the cast becomes your family. Right. And you work with each other every day for months on end and then however long your uh, your production goes uh it, it's like a death in the family when, yeah. when a show goes down. Yeah. I think for me at the end of the day, I'm bringing this up in the triloquy because I have done a lot of work this year, especially in these past few months to do my best to put myself in other people's shoes. There's some healing that has to happen to be able to do that, to decenter, you know, your own trauma and what you're, you know, dealing with val- uh, in a valid way, you know, not to uh, d- diminish those feelings. But through my attempts to put myself in other people's shoes, I've been able to begin to understand, you know, how I can quell uh, anti-Semitism as we've been seeing it uh, pop up, how that has had to have an impact on the artists, maybe I should say the artist that I tend to celebrate and do everything I can to uh, uh, to justify publicly. But, you know, there are certain changes that I've had to make. Um, you know, watching this K-pop show just reminded me and helped me think about what it must be like to have aspirations of that sort of space as an Asian person who's typically, um, you know, typecast in a certain type of role, even on the classical music side of things. You know, I think about um, Aida. I think about, you know, we watched uh, Nutcracker the other weekend. It was just kind of looking at that Chinese dance a little bit funny. Mm. You know, I I can, you know, I, I can never 
understand what it's like to be in those shoes. But, you know, with my own marginalized uh, experience and, you know, just using my imagination and just realizing that you don't see a lot, if any, Asian-led shows on Broadway or in, in that genre of performance is something that we have to pay attention to, can't ignore. So, you know, shout out to all of the cast. I hope that, you know, we can all do what we can to build that solidarity by supporting different things. You know, if there's something a little different at the holiday program, just calm down. It's going to be okay. If somebody is in the audience uh, yelling racial slurs at, um, <laughs> at, at the performers, I only laugh again because it's so ridiculous. You know, do something. Damn. You know, don't just sit there. Don't sit there and be shocked and go run to a reporter to talk about how shocked you were. Do something about that person in that moment. You know, um, don't expect people to not have emotional reaction to their marginalization. Let's just have that empathy. Try to put ourselves in other people's shoes so that all of these things that we're preaching and alleging to support, we can actually realize and, and manifest. I hope that K-pop musical comes back somewhere somehow because it was beautiful it was entertaining you know the the 14 year old girl in me was you know being enlivened when mm. you feel like the k-pop uh, dancer is looking right at you and he winks <laughs> you know it's <laughs> it's definitely a thing and I'm i sure and i just you know i really see the value and and uh diversity of programming um in in that way so um you know, a, a, maybe a soft triloquy for this week. You know, oh, let's nice. let, let's build that uh, solidarity. Go listen to some K-pop. Go listen to some uh, Jewish music in uh, in celebration of Hanukkah this week. And let's let the arts, let's let culture be the impetus for the actual connections that we can make toward building that solidarity and creating a better, peaceful, you know, world that doesn't require, you know. All of this nonsense we talk about on this podcast. Hallelujah. Goodness gracious. Well, thank y'all, and we'll see you next week.